0: Okay, we are in Isaiah, and we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 20 tonight, and we're going to look at two chapters, Isaiah 20 and Isaiah 21, and this is a very interesting um, prophecy especially in Isaiah 21 it's related to Babylon again in Isaiah 21 we've already looked at judgments against Babylon but the interesting thing about the prophecies in Isaiah related to the judgments against Babylon number 1 these prophecies were written some somewhere in the neighborhood between 710 and 730 BC all of these prophecies that are the oracles or the burdens or the judgments of God against all of these nations that we've been looking at for several weeks here and the judgment against Babylon didn't really happen for almost 200 years until 539 BC uh, when the Babylonian Empire fell so as Isaiah is prophesying the destruction of Babylon Babylon didn't even exist as a nation at this time. They really were nobodies at this time, and yet God was showing uh, Isaiah the future, letting him know what was coming, and indeed everything happened exactly as God predicted that it would, because God exists outside of time. He knows the future. Uh, but there, is, there are uh, double meanings to some of these prophecies. There are uh, current fulfillments or contemporary fulfillments that would come within a 100 years or 200 years Uh, specifically of when Isaiah uh, wrote these down. And there are future fulfillments that have not yet happened in our day. And we're in 2020 AD. This was written in 720 BC, so almost 3,000 years ago. Uh, And some of these prophecies are yet future because they deal with the Antichrist. And they deal with the revived Babylonian um, uh, city the city of Babylon, the whore of Babylon, the harlot of Babylon, the spiritual uh, church of the Antichrist is called the harlot who rides uh, the beast. The harlot that dresses in scarlet and rules over the kings of the earth And I, in uh, Revelation chapter uh, 17 and Revelation chapter 18. And then there's economic Babylon which is likely going to be the Antichrist seat of power. He's going to rebuild Babylon. A lot of people think America's Babylon. I don't think so. America's not in prophecy. I think America's going down the tubes, uh, and we're watching it happen like a slow-motion you know, landslide or mudslide or something. America's literally sliding over a cliff economically right now, and it is happening purposefully uh, because this is... Uh, this is what the European central bankers really want to do and the Chinese and the Russians and really the whole world hates America uh, and, and they're trying to take us down. And so I don't think that the Babylon that's mentioned in the, in the Bible, in the book of Revelation or here in Isaiah is talking about America, not at all. I think America is going to be a second rate power or we are going to be basically brought in to the revived Roman empire of of europe if we have any part to play at all in bible prophecy i think that our days as a powerful nation are waning and i believe that the judgment of god has already started against our nation and i don't see a great revival i don't see people weeping and fasting and ripping their clothes and humbling themselves and, you know, really getting real with God. Some, some of you are. Some of you are here because you are those people that are getting real with God. But not the vast majority uh, of Americans or of Christians in this country. We're just going about business as usual. Like everything is eventually going to go back to normal. That's what we all think. And uh, that may be the case. It's unlikely to be the case Uh, if this Great Reset and the Agenda 2021 program actually is implemented. It is purposefully being orchestrated to take America down as the economic superpower of the world. And the World Economic Forum is saying that by 2030, it's on their website, America will no longer be the world's superpower. There will be no more singular superpower nations of the world. That time is coming to an end, these European Uh, powerful bankers tell us, and we will have a consolidation of power and a one world government and a one world currency. Uh, And this is what we'll be rolling out. So when Satan comes through the Antichrist, uh, he is going to rebuild the city of Babylon. And and then God is going to destroy it uh, as the seat of his power. And so we're going to be looking at that uh, a little bit here tonight. So the title of this message is The Destruction of Babylon the Great. The Destruction of Babylon the Great. So Isaiah chapter 20 and verse 1. First we deal with this really short chapter that we're going to get through quickly here. Uh, It's only six verses related to uh, Egypt and Cush or Ethiopia or modern day Sudan. So we have Isaiah 20 verse 1. In the year that Tartan came to Ashdod, when Sargon, the king of Assyria, sent him, and he fought against Ashdod, and he took it, at the same time the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and remove the sackcloth from your body, take your sandals off your feet. And he did so walking naked and barefoot. So what is being predicted here uh, is this burden that is a judgment coming against Egypt. Now, Tartan was actually like the commander of the Assyrian army. So in the year that Tartan, who was the commander of the Assyrian army, came to Ashdod, uh, historians tell us this happened in in 711 B.C., 711 years before Christ B.C., that Ashdod was captured by Tartan, who was the commander of the Assyrian army. Remember, the Assyrians were just destroying everybody in their path. They'd already carried away captive the ten northern tribes in 722 BC. They would actually come to besiege the city of Jerusalem uh, later on, and then God would defend uh, Judah and Jerusalem by sending an angel to wipe out their army. Uh, But in the meanwhile the Assyrian army was unstoppable. Everywhere they went, they just destroyed all of their enemies, and they were brutal, and they were completely uh, powerful. Nobody really could oppose them. So Ashdod was one of the five cities of the Philistines. You remember Goliath and his brothers, the Philistines. The Philistines were always a thorn in the side to Israel and to David and to King Saul and to the Jews throughout their history. And so basically, the Assyrians were going to come, and they were going to crush the main Philistine city of Ashdod. This is what's being prophesied before it happens. And of course, uh, it's exactly what happened in 711 BC. Ashdod was captured by uh, Sargon II, who was the king over Assyria. Verse 2 says, And at that same time, the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and remove the sackcloth from your body and take your sandals off your feet. And he did so walking naked and barefoot. Now, he wasn't walking around naked. What this means is that the prophet would dress in a certain way that would make him to stand out. Just like the high priest would wear certain clothes and robes and ephods and headpieces and so forth. uh, To identify who they were. The king would wear certain garments that only the king would wear. Uh, You remember when King David... Was bringing back the Ark of the Covenant, and they would offer a sacrifice uh, every so often, and they would carry the Ark, and then they would stop, and they would offer a sacrifice, and they had the musicians playing, and they were bringing the Ark of the Covenant uh, back into Jerusalem, and David was dancing before the Lord. You remember in the scriptures, he was dancing before the Lord. He was so excited. David loved the Lord, and he was dancing before the Lord as they were bringing the Ark of the Covenant back into the land. The Philistines had had the Ark of the Covenant for a long time, and David had recaptured it. And you remember that his first wife, David had a bunch of wives, actually ended up with about 12 wives at least. Um, But his first wife was the daughter of King Saul. King Saul told him that if you kill this many Philistines and bring me their foreskins, uh, you can have my daughter. Uh, as as your wife as a queen and David was the captain and he was the general and he had killed Goliath and then he went and killed all these Philistines and he brought back their foreskins thousand foreskins or whatever it was Uh, and the people were singing in the streets Saul has killed his thousands and David has killed his tens of thousands and so forth and so Saul was actually really jealous of David and thought that David would die in battle he really didn't want to give his daughter to David uh, as a bride but David of course was anointed of the Lord and so David was this great warrior this great captain in general uh, and soldier and David uh, was married to Michal was her name and it was his first wife and Michal was King Saul's daughter and you remember that when David came back after dancing in the street Michal was watching him as he was dancing through the streets uh, with the Ark of the Covenant celebrating that they brought the Ark back and she rebuked him, and she said, you made quite a spectacle of yourself out there today, David. You certainly didn't look like a king as you were dancing nakedly out there before all of the maidens, you know. And, uh, and then God put a curse upon McCall and she didn't have any children after that. But... David wasn't naked. It wasn't like he was undressed. It's just he was not wearing his king's garments. He was wearing just normal clothes, his undergarments, you know, uh, which everyone else wore. He didn't have his special garments on. And so in essence, that would be the idea of kind of being undressed before the people. You're not wearing the proper garments to show that you're the king or you're the priest or you're the prophet. And so when Isaiah was told to remove the sackcloth from his body. In essence, he was just dressed in his underrobe or his undergarments. He wasn't wearing the sackcloth. And the sackcloth was that which was like the camel's hair. It was uncomfortable and it was itchy and uh, it was rough. And it was um, sort of the self mortification or self affliction that the prophet would bring uh, to the nation. And uh, you remember John the Baptist dressed in this way as well, uh, dressed in camel hair or, or, or sackcloth. And so it's not that he was walking around naked uh, for three years in Jerusalem. That's not what it means, although that's kind of what it says in our English translation, at least in the New King James Version here. So God is saying, remove the sackcloth from your body, take the sandals off of your feet, and he did so walking naked and barefoot. And this was going to be an illustration to the people, basically. And in verse 3, we read, Then the Lord said, Just as my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot three years for a sign and a wonder against Egypt and Ethiopia, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptians as prisoners and the Ethiopians as captives, young and old, naked and barefoot, with their buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. And when the Assyrians would go in, they were very cruel. They were very, very cruel conquerors. If you would willingly uh, give up and not fight them, they wouldn't destroy you. Uh, But if you fought them and you tried to stand your ground with them, they were very cruel to the people who tried to fight against them. And so uh, God was basically warning the Egyptians, that the Assyrians were going to conquer them. And the purpose of this, this relates to Israel and Judah because um, Judah was thinking of making an alliance with the Egyptians at the time that the Assyrians were on the rampage and conquering everybody. And God was letting uh, Judea know, Judah, don't make a, a, a treaty with anyone Because God was going to defend Judah against the Assyrians. They didn't need to make a treaty with Moab or uh, with Egypt or um, uh, with Cush or any of the other nations around. They were all going to fall to the Assyrians. And so God was basically letting his people know, don't trust in making a deal with Egypt or making some sort of an alliance. uh, Because these guys are going down. The Egyptians are going to be carried away uh, captive. And we read in verse... Five, Then they shall be afraid and ashamed of Ethiopia. Ethiopia is uh, modern-day Sudan, ancient Kush. Their expectation and Egypt their glory. And the inhabitants of this territory will say in that day, Surely such is our expectation. Wherever we flee for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria, how shall we escape? And there really was no escape uh, for Uh, the nations who tried to oppose Assyria because God had allowed Assyria to be raised up to judge uh, these nations. And so this was uh, a period of three years that Isaiah went around without shoes on and it was a it it was a personal illustration of what was coming to these nations. Now it's interesting that Cush or Ethiopia is modern-day Sudan And you remember we did a teaching, oh, it's probably a month or two ago now, uh, about the war that's coming, the last day's war between Israel, after they've been restored to their land, Ezekiel 38 and 39 talk about this war that's still yet future, and that Kush or Sudan or Ethiopia is one of the five nations, a confederation of nations that has a sneak attack on Israel after they're dwelling in safety or securely, dwelling in peace in the land, after they have been restored to the Holy Land, uh, after they had been scattered to the whole world. And so Kush is modern-day Sudan. And what's interesting is today... I mean, it's, it's in the news right now. There are 20,000 Sudanese soldiers, mercenaries, who are in Libya that are basically amassing troops. The Libyans are amassing troops for the Turks. The Turks are trying to rebuild the Ottoman Empire. Erdogan is trying to regather the Ottoman Empire, the ancient Turkish Ottoman Empire, which ruled the Middle East from 1517 to 1917 until the end of World War I. And he thinks he's a sultan. He thinks he's this messiah figure of sorts for the Muslims to bring back the Muslim heritage into the Middle East. He's converting churches, ancient churches, like the Hagia Sophia, into mosques. Churches that have been there for 1,500, 1,600 years. He's converting them into mosques. Uh, And trying to erase all the Christian history that's in the uh, ancient Turkish Empire. And he is allied with the Libyans. The Libyans are posturing themselves for a civil war. One side of the Libyan army is being supported by the United Nations and the European Union. The other side is supported by Erdogan and the Turks. And so you have all these armies amassing in Libya like they're getting ready for a war. You also have Israel drilling in the Middle East and getting oil and getting natural gas out of the Middle East. You have Turkey looking for gas and looking, uh, desperately looking for oil in the Middle East, and they can't find any there in the Mediterranean Sea. So the Turks want to go and they want to take over Israel's gas infrastructure there in the mediterranean sea the turks have their navy there in the mediterranean sea the french are down there uh to defend the your uh the libyan leader because of the civil war that's building up between southern and uh northern or eastern and western libya but the interesting thing is is that in ezekiel 38 and 39 it also says that russia is going to be involved in this attack on israel And so is Iran. And right now you have Russia in Syria on Israel's border, just north of the Golan Heights. You have Russia there with all their armaments, all their armies, and even their navy uh, because of the Syrian civil war as they're supporting uh, the President Assad in Syria. You have the Iranians there through Hezbollah and Hamas that are there on the borders of Israel in Lebanon, in Syria, and in the Gaza Strip. So The Iranians have influence through their proxies, Hezbollah and Hamas. uh, And they are preparing for war against Israel. They're always preparing for war against Israel. They want to drive the Jews into the Mediterranean Sea. Um, And then you have Libya and Turkey and the Sudanese uh, all right there, you know, staging for an attack And so it's just amazing that God predicted that all, exactly all of these nations would attack Israel in the last days. And they're all right there with all their militaries now. That's never happened in all of human history, by the way. All these armies have been right there, right around Israel, with their armies. Um, It's never happened before in the history of the world. So things are definitely accelerating prophetically. And when this war happens, God is going to defend his people like he did in ancient times. And so this is going to be a surprise attack. They're going to attack Israel at a time when Israel's not expecting it, when they're dwelling in peace and securely like they are right now. Israel's very secure because they're making peace deals with the Saudis, with Bahrain, uh, with other uh, countries, United Arab Emirates, and so forth. And uh, the... Uh, Israelis are feeling very confident right now. Matter of fact, their enemies are falling apart. They're making treaties with all of their other enemies that used to be their enemies. They've got peace with Egypt. They have peace with Jordan. But there's all these other nations that they don't have peace with that have all their armies right there on their border. And so when Israel gets attacked, they're not going to expect it. Nobody's going to jump in and help Israel. Israel's going to be on their own, which means the United States will not be in a position anymore to be Israel's defender at this time. Uh, and with a change in presidential administration, you could see how that could happen. And, uh, and then God is going to rain down fire and brimstone, and God is going to destroy the invading army. Uh, six, seventh, sevenths of the invading army is going to be destroyed by natural disasters, earthquakes, hailstone, fire coming from heaven, and so forth. Uh, and then these armies that are against Israel to take spoils of war, they're going to turn against each other and destroy each other. And that's probably when the Antichrist is going to show up because in essence all of Israel's enemies will either be at peace with them. Sheba and Dedan are protesting what happens. That's modern-day Saudi Arabia. They're not involved in the war. They're protesting this attack against Israel in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Uh, And then all of Israel's other enemies, Turkey, Iran, Russia, whoever else is against them, Libya, Sudan, they're going to be wiped out by God in this invasion. And That's likely when the Antichrist is going to reveal himself. He's going to come in. He's going to basically applaud the Jews for their God defending them against all their enemies. Israel will have no more Muslim enemies around them anymore. They'll all be wiped out by God, uh, or they'll be at peace with them because of peace treaties. And that's when they will probably enter into their seven year covenant. They'll be allowed, the Jews will be allowed to rebuild their temple, which is what they want to do. And then the Antichrist will take advantage of the peace in the Middle East, and he will rebuild the city of Babylon. And Babylon will be his seat of power. Ancient Babylon will be rebuilt according to the Bible prophets. So we read here in chapter 21 about the fall of Babylon. And again, this is speaking twofold. It's speaking of the fall of Babylon that happened in 539 B.C., And it's also speaking of the future fall of Babylon because that's recorded for us uh, at the end of the tribulation period in the book of Revelation. So we read in verse 1 of chapter 21. The burden or the oracle or the judgment against the wilderness of the sea as whirlwinds in the south pass through so it comes from the desert from a terrible land. A distressing vision is declared to me. The treacherous dealer deals treacherously, and the plunderer plunders. Go up, O Elam, besiege, O Media. All its sighing I have made to cease. So the wilderness of the sea is speaking of Babylon. Uh, Babylon had apparently in ancient times a lot of water from the Tigris and the Euphrates River. Uh, It's where the Tigris and the Euphrates River meet. And so it was a very fertile land at one time. They had a lot of water. They had a lot of marshland. They had a lot of agriculture. So even though it was hot and it was in the middle of the desert, modern-day Iraq, back then it was also, they had, you know, um, oases in the desert, if you will, where they had water, and they had water that they could grow crops and so forth. So it became known as the wilderness uh, of the sea or the desert of the sea, as some translations say. And as the whirlwinds in the south, the Negev pass through, so it comes from the desert, from a terrible land. A distressing vision is declared to me. The treacherous dealer deals treacherously, and the plunderer plunders. Now, he calls out these two nations by name. He says, go up, O Elam, and besiege, O Midia, and all that sign I have made to cease. Now, uh, Elam would have been ancient Persia before Persia existed. So Elam was the name of the land at the time Isaiah was writing this prophecy uh, where Persia would basically become the nation of Persia. And the Persians would get together with the Medes and they would form an alliance and they would be the Medo-Persian Empire uh, that would conquer the Middle East and the world basically when they conquered Babylon in five 39 BC. Babylon was the world power uh, from about 606 BC to 539 and then Medo-Persia became the world power after that until Alexander the Great came along, the Greek empire, and then Alexander the Great Great conquered all these lands and then it became part of the Greek empire and then the Romans came after and they conquered uh, from Greece. And so God is predicting this uh, hundreds of years in advance before it happened. He's even calling the land Elam through the prophet Isaiah before it was called Persia. And so God is calling out who is going to come, who is going to attack, and who is going to uh, destroy the great and powerful city of Babylon. Now you remember we looked at this uh, a few weeks ago in Daniel chapter 5. We see actually recorded for us in the book of Daniel when the Babylonian empire fell. They were having a big party. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, Belshazzar, was drunk. He had a thousand of his lords. They were besieged by the Medo-Persians. Their uh, armies came and besieged the city's walls of Jerusalem, of Babylon. But the city walls of Babylon were impenetrable. Uh, They were 300 feet high. They were dug 40 feet under the ground, so you couldn't dig under the city. You couldn't go over the city and scale the walls. Uh, It was uh, 60 miles squared, 15 miles By 15 miles, by 15, by 15 miles, so 60 miles squared. Uh, The walls were, um, you know, 20 or 30 feet wide. So it was just this fortress that nobody could penetrate. They had the Euphrates River running underneath the city, so they had a fresh water source. Uh, And they had food stores. Uh, the historian said, that could last for 50 to 100 years to feed their people. So they were very arrogant. They were very cocky. They thought nobody could take us down. We're too well secured. We could outlast any armies that would besiege us and and basically try and starve us out. And what happened was, is that the uh, general named Cyrus, and we looked at this in Isaiah 45, God predicted this as well, that there would be a... Uh, general who would come who would conquer Babylon and what he did was he diverted the Euphrates River and when he diverted the Euphrates River the Euphrates River ran underneath the gates and the walls of Babylon uh, and there were these big gates that you know that, that were over where the river went under the city and you couldn't get underneath the gates or over the gates when the river was uh, running at, at, at full uh, levels And what they did is they they basically dried up the Euphrates River. They diverted it. And so when the water levels got low enough, their army snuck in underneath the gates of the city that were over uh, where the Euphrates River ran through the city. So nobody expected them to come. Not only that, they forgot to lock the gates that day of the main uh, gates to go into the city. Once you got underneath the wall, they had all kinds of gates uh, to cross over the Euphrates River to get into the actual city of Babylon, and those gates were left unlocked, again, because of the arrogance of the Babylonian army and the Babylonian king. And this is when the handwriting appeared on the wall, the hand of God wrote on the wall, many, many, Teku Eupharsin, Uh, Belshazzar was drinking from the cups of the holy cups of Israel that they had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. He was having an orgy with all these women and all these lords and all these rulers were there. They were drunk, they were partying, and they were using God's holy instruments to do it, which was totally blasphemous. And so God wrote on the wall, uh, your days are numbered, you've been found uh, wanting in the balances and the scales of judgment Uh, You found lacking, and your kingdom is about to be divided. It will be taken from you tonight. Basically was the uh, uh, interpretation of the handwriting on the wall. And exactly that is what happened. They were conquered that night, really, without um, the Medo-Persians having to fire uh, even a shot. And so it was the judgment of God taking down Babylon. So he's beginning to warn here about this judgment that's going to come and again remember this is written almost 200 years before the event happened he says in verse three therefore my loins are filled with pain and pangs have taken hold of me like the pangs of a woman in labor i was distressed when i heard it i was dismayed when i saw it my heart wavered fearfulness frightened me the night for which i longed he turned into fear for me prepare the table set a watchman in the tower eat and drink and arise you princes and anoint the shield so isaiah is almost feeling what they would be feeling when the hammer of judgment would fall upon babylon that night and he says that it was like he was sick to his stomach it's interesting that this is how belshazzar was described when he saw the king of of, of babylon when he saw the hand appear of god and the finger of God and the handwriting appear on the wall, uh, he almost collapsed. It says that he was sick to his stomach, um, his uh, loins were loosed, and his knees were knocking, basically is what it says in Daniel chapter 5. So it's almost like God was allowing Isaiah to experience what they were going to feel when the Medo-Persians came in and conquered the city of Babylon. And when he says, prepare the table, set a watchman in the tower, eat and drink, that's what they were doing. They were partying. They were having a big party uh, there when the Medo-Persians came in and conquered them. He says, anoint the shield. This would have been where they put oil on their shields to prepare for battle, uh, to deflect the arrows that would be shot at them uh, from their enemies. The other thing here that's interesting is that Isaiah is speaking when he says in verse three, my loins are filled with pain and pains have uh, taken hold of me like the pangs of a woman in labor. In other words, Isaiah was saying it made him sick to see what was going to happen because war is brutal. War, war is terrible. Uh, war, is, war is hell. They say war is hell for a reason. Anybody that's fought in combat understands. Or a nurse that's working on the you know, front lines to bandage up and put the pieces of the people back together that come back from the front lines. You know, war is hell. And ancient war was terrible. It was cruel. Uh, There was no mercy among the ancient uh, peoples. When you got conquered, you lost everything. Uh, Oftentimes, they killed just about everyone unless they wanted to turn you into a a slave or a concubine uh, for, for, for their generals or for their kings or what have you. And so Isaiah, being a man of God and being a man who's filled with the Holy Spirit and a man who's sensitive because, you know, God loves people and he's seeing what judgment is going to come and he's saying that he was made sick. He was sick to his stomach and he felt like a woman that was in labor ready to give birth to a child. It's interesting that Ezekiel talks about the flying scroll that he was to take and he was to eat, and that scroll was a judgment of God that was coming upon Judah and on Jerusalem. And then we read in uh, the book of Revelation that John, the apostle, was told to eat a little scroll, a scroll of judgment. And we read this in Revelation chapter 10 and verse 8, what John says, Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go and take the little book or the little scroll which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book or give me the scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Verse 10. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand, and I ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. So remember, John was the apostle of love. He's the one that wrote the epistle of John, the gospel of John. He wrote the epistles of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And uh, he was the apostle of love. And so, no doubt, when he understood the judgment of God that was coming upon the earth in the last days, this is what the scroll symbolized. It scrolled the judgment of God, uh, or symbolized the judgment of God that was coming upon the whole world at this time. And really, it's going to be terrible, the time of the tribulation, especially the great tribulation at least three-fourths of the earth's population is going to die. That would be approximately 6 billion people out of 8 billion people today. Roughly 7.5 billion people, they say. Uh, So at least 75% of the earth's population is going to die in that three-and-a-half-year period, the Great Tribulation period. It's going to be terrible like no other time in human history. And so John, when he eats this scroll, which is the prophecies of the judgments of God that are going to be poured out, he says it was sweet to his mouth, like honey. It tasted sweet, but it made him sick to his stomach. And the idea is, is that when God pours out his wrath, God is very, very patient with man. He's been very patient with the United States of America. Very patient with us. Although we have been an increasingly wicked nation for many, many decades now. Abortions, uh, worse than any other nation in the world, more aborted babies up till nine months Uh, fully viable children that could be born and live and be adopted out. If the mother decides she wants to kill her baby at eight months, it's perfectly legal. They harvest the baby parts. They use them for health care and medicine and things like this. Um, And the gay marriage, the transgender being pushed on our children and so forth, the perversion from Hollywood, the music industry, so satanic. And, you know, this is America, and we're sending this filth all over the world. What's made here in America doesn't stay in America. It goes all over the world now, through television and through the internet and so forth. And so God has been very patient with America. But at some point, God's patience is going to run out and he is going to pour out his wrath upon our country. And we need to understand that that is coming. Unless there's a great revival and we repent as a nation for all of the wickedness and we stop all the wickedness and we start doing righteousness. And I don't see that happening anytime soon. And so the idea of God judging wickedness and judging uh, wicked behavior, things that are terrible like harming children, like trafficking children through sex trafficking. We're the leader in the world of sex trafficking in America, the leader of the world in abortions, the leader of the world in pornography, the leader of, of the world in the New Age movement, in witchcraft, in the Satanism, the Church of Satan, um, the practice of magic. we're we're the leader of the world of all these bad things that we don't want to be the leader of the world in, but we are. And so it would be sweet to see God judge the sin of our nation. But the problem is, is when God judges, there's good people who suffer as well in the midst of the wicked people who are being judged. So like John is saying, like Isaiah was saying, it's like it's, it's, it's sickening to your stomach. The judgment of God may be sweet to your mouth, but it's, when it's actually happening, it's going to make you sick to your stomach. Uh, because there's going to be a lot of suffering and there's going to be a lot of people uh, who will suffer. But like Billy Graham used to say, if God doesn't judge America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Because we're no better than Sodom and Gomorrah. We really aren't. And our wickedness is polluting the whole world. We're not just keeping it within uh, our nation or within our boundaries of our borders so he's saying again back here in isaiah in chapter 21 in verse 6 continuing he says for thus has the lord said to me go and set a watchman and let him declare what he sees and he saw a chariot with a pair of horsemen a chariot of donkeys and a chariot of camels, and he listened earnestly with great care. So um, God was showing Isaiah how the armies were going to come. They didn't necessarily uh, put chariots on the back of donkeys or chariots on the back of camels, but they used donkeys in war, and they used uh, camels in war in the Middle East at this time. And so the Medo-Persian Empire, um, apparently they didn't ride... Um, uh, horsemen with chariots. They had a few chariots with horsemen, but they also brought their um, their uh, cavalry with camels, just like, let's say, Lawrence of Arabia, the movie Lawrence of Arabia, and they're all riding their camels in the Arab countries. That's what they used to ride. They used to ride camels. They did, uh, you know, they fought wars on camels, on the back of camels and, uh, and donkeys, and so God was basically showing Isaiah how these armies were going to get there to Um, besiege and conquer the city of Babylon. Uh, Donkeys and camels and uh, chariots with horsemen. In verse 8, he says, Then he cried, A lion, my lord. I stand continually on the watchtower in the daytime. I have sat at my post every night. And look, here comes a chariot of men with a pair of horsemen. So the cry, a lion, would be the cry of the shepherd." Or the goat herder when you were in danger. You would scream a lion, a lion. And then everybody would know to look out there's danger coming. And so this would have been like a cry uh, of warning. A cry of danger that there's an enemy that's coming uh, to attack us. And then we have this interesting uh, verse here at the end of verse 9. Where he says this. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And all the carved images of her gods he has broken to the ground. O oh, my threshing and the grain of my floor, that which I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have declared to you. Now, this is a prophecy of the future Babylon. When the future Babylon in the book of Revelation is going to be destroyed uh, by God, really. Because we'll read this in a minute. That this is quoted there uh, in the book of Revelation about Babylon being judged by God and 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 they say Babylon is fallen is fallen now the interesting about Babylon is that Babylon is the ancient seat of idolatry Egypt is the ancient seat or place of all magic all magic finds its roots in Egypt ancient Egypt With their contact with the gods, the fallen angels that gave them information and, uh, you know, astrology, astrological charts and so forth. Uh, All of the pyramids that were built in specific geometrical positions uh, when the geometry didn't even exist. Uh, You know, 4,000... 500 years ago when these temples uh, were built, these pyramids were built, they're perfectly geometrical features of these pyramids, lining up with the stars, uh, astrological signs in the heavens. And so they had made contact uh, in Egypt with the fallen angels, the false gods. And that's who had given them all this secret knowledge, probably even the geometry of how to build these giant uh, pyramids that still stand today after 4,500 years or 5,000 years of history. Uh, but Babylon was the ancient seat of idolatry. And all rebellion of man against God started in Babylon at the Tower of Babel. And so Babylon is a place that God is always talking about judging throughout history. Because it's where the first real organized religion and rebellion against God began there in the Ur of the Chaldees in ancient uh, Babel where the Tower of Babel was built. In Genesis chapter 11, you see the roots of Babylon here. In Genesis chapter 11 in verse 1 about the Tower of Babel we read, now the whole earth had language and had one speech or one tongue. They all spoke the same language. This was after Noah's flood, after the Floodwaters receded, and Noah and his sons came out, and they began to repopulate the earth. Verse 2 says, And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. This is ancient Babylon. Then they said to one another, Come and let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. And by the way, it said that uh, John D. Rockefeller went and started looking for oil in Iraq because of this verse and because of um, Noah building his ark and covering his ark with pitch back in Genesis chapter 6 and chapter 7. So Rockefeller said, hey, if they're talking about pitch and they're talking about asphalt, they're talking about oil. And so he went over there to the Middle East from America, the founder of Standard Oil, to go look for oil. And lo and behold, he found oil there in the Middle East, just like the Bible said there was Uh, oil, asphalt for mortar and the pitch to uh, make the ark uh, waterproof. He says in verse four, and they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower or a ziggurat whose top is in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. So this was the first ancient tower. The first ancient tower. From this point on, you're going to see God confounded their languages. He stopped their building project And the people were then scattered from there all over the world. And then they built towers all over the world. They built towers in Central America. They built pyramids in South America. They built pyramids in Egypt. They built pyramids in China. They built, um, you know, different uh, structures, ziggurats and different structures all over the world. And the idea is is that they were trying to make contact with the demonic realm. They were trying to make contact with the stars of the heavens and with the gods of the heavens, uh, which was forbidden by God to try and contact other gods. Uh, And that's what they were doing. They were building this tower, number one, so that if another worldwide flood came, they would be high enough that they wouldn't drown. That was probably their first reason for building this tower, in case there was another flood. They were figuring out a way besides turning to God and, you know, having God give them a solution on how to survive the flood. They built this tower. And also, it was so that they could have secret knowledge, so that they could contact the fallen angels, the stars or the fallen angels uh, in the scriptures, which, of course, are demons. It's interesting that we're beginning to see these monoliths that are appearing all over the world right now, these silver monoliths uh, that are appearing everywhere. I mean, they're appearing in Romania. They're appearing in the deserts of Utah and Atascadero. Uh, they're they're these, the, these monoliths that are appearing everywhere. And a lot of people believe that these monoliths are an indication that um, there is a new Um, evolution of man coming related to the stars of the heavens, you know, and um, basically it's from Arthur C. Clarke's 2001 A Space Odyssey uh, that this was a sign of evolution of man. If you ever watched Arthur C. Clarke's 2001 A Space Odyssey and you had all the monkeys jumping around these monoliths, these silver monoliths, they then evolved, quote-unquote, evolved uh, into humans. So it was a stage of evolution, they said, that was being brought by the aliens or whatever down to the earth. And of course, the aliens are just demons. That's all they are. They're just lying spirits. They're deceiving people into thinking that they're aliens. They're just fallen angels. They're demons. Uh, and so it is like a hint, it's an indication of what they say is coming that they're going to bring an evolution of man, and the evolution of man, they say, was from uh, monkey to man. Now it's going to be from man to machine. The next evolution is that we're going to become cyborgs, and we're going to become robots. They're going to put the digital, the physical, and the biological together for the first time in history and create machines of men. And that was what they say uh, is the next evolution of man, which, of course, is uh, nonsense. Evolution is a fairy tale that is not the truth of how we got here we did not evolve from monkeys we were made as men and women in the image of god from the very beginning we read in verse six and the lord said indeed the people are one and they all have one language and this is what they begin to do and now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them come and let us go down who's speaking the lord is speaking capital L-O-R-D, which is the Yahweh or the Jehovah or the Tetragrammaton, where God said his name was, I am to Moses at the burning bush. This is the name of God, Yahweh, the Lord. And it says, let us, God calls himself us. Elohim is plural uh, for God. It's not singular. And so that is speaking of the triunity of God, even way back here. Let us, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the Godhead, go down, and they're confused their language, That they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth. And they ceased from building the city or the tower of Babel. Therefore its name is called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. Do you know that this is the first time in history since the tower of Babel. That the whole world speaks one language again. They all spoke one language after the flood. Because they were all the sons of Noah and and, and the daughter-in-laws of Noah that came off the ark that repopulated the earth. And they all spoke the same language until God confounded their language or changed their language so they couldn't understand each other. That's where all the dialects of all the languages all over the world come from. Uh, But now we're at a time for the first time in history where we have the language of the computer, which is the zeros and the ones. And the whole world uses the computer language to communicate. And so computers can communicate and translate every language, any language, instantaneously all over the world. So it's the first time since the Tower of Babel that the whole world has one language. And isn't it interesting that the powerful people of the world are trying to consolidate power, use the technology to take over the world um, now that they can control the world through uh, one language and a uh, constant sort of a surveillance and communication system uh, of the whole world. So this is the reason that Babylon uh, is, is is such a wicked nation before God. It's a nation that is uh, Babylon that traces its roots to Babel of rebellion against God, idolatry, not choosing to worship the God who created you, but choosing to worship the stars of the heavens or the fallen angels. Now, Isaiah also talked about this, as you will recall, in Isaiah chapter 13. He made a proclamation against Babylon in Isaiah chapter 13. And again, it is very similar uh, to some of the judgments that are coming against the Babylon that's mentioned that's in the future, which is the harlot and the economic Babylon of Revelation 17 and 18, which is the Antichrist government, basically. And the devil, of course, is going to take that government over. So we read this in Isaiah 13, verse 1. "'The burden against Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw, lift up a banner on the high mountain, raise your voice to them, wave your hand, that they may enter the gates of the nobles. I have commanded my sanctified ones, I have called my mighty ones for my anger, those who rejoice in my exaltation." The noise of a multitude in the mountains, like that of many peoples, a tumultuous noise of the kingdoms of nations gathered together, the army of hosts, or the Lord of hosts musters the army for battle. They come from a far country, from the end of heaven, the Lord and his weapons of indignation to destroy the whole land. So, this is not talking about just the Medo Persians who conquered uh, ancient Babylon in 539 BC. This is the future judgment of God against the Antichrist and against the revival of uh, Babylon because he says he's going to destroy the whole land the Lord is going to do this in his indignation another name for the tribulation period he says "Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand the day of the Lord is another phrase for the tribulation period it will come as destruction from the Almighty therefore all hands will be limp every man's heart will melt they will be afraid pangs and sorrows will take hold of them they will be in pain As a woman in childbirth, very similar language to what uh, Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 21. They will be amazed at one another. Uh, Their faces will be like flames. Remember that Jesus said that his coming is going to be like a woman in her birth pangs, about to give birth to a baby. That as he comes, it's going to be like the labor pains of a woman about to give birth to a child, which means that the signs... And the indications of the judgment of God upon the world leading up to the second coming of Christ are going to increase like the labor pains of a woman in labor in frequency and intensity until the baby comes. And so what we see, earthquakes, wars, rumors of wars, nations against nations, kingdoms against kingdoms, pestilences, famines, plagues and diseases, all of these things are happening with increased frequency and intensity as we get closer to the time of the end, exactly as Jesus predicted that it would be. He says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, this is again the tribulation period, cruel, with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate. He will destroy its sinners from it, for the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give light. The sun will be darkened, and it's going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. This is what's coming. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make make a mortal more rare than fine gold, a man more than the golden wedge of Ephra. In other words, man is going to be more scarce than gold at that time by the end of the tribulation period. So many people are going to be killed. He says, therefore, I will shake the heavens, verse 13, and the earth will move out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. It shall be as a hunted gazelle and his sheep that no man takes up. Every man will turn to his own people. Everyone will flee to his own land. Everyone who is found will be thrust through and everyone who is captured will fall by the sword and then the terrible effects of war, their children also will be dashed to pieces before their eyes, their eyes, their houses will be plundered, their wives ravished. And so this is for those who are following the Antichrist, those who reject Jesus Christ, those who follow the Antichrist, and those who take the mark of the beast, and identify themselves with the devil's man. Uh, There's going to be no salvation, as we're going to see here in the next couple of weeks, for those who actually take the mark of the beast. The COVID vaccine is not the mark of the beast. I want to make that very clear. The technology may well be used later to bring forth the mark of the beast, but we're going to look at that in some detail as we look at the Great Reset. The technologies right now are being formulated. They're being compiled. They're being invented that later the Antichrist uh will use. And so, please be clear, your pastor is not saying that if you take the vaccine, you're taking the mark of the beast. All I'm saying is this might later become the mark of the beast. And I'm not going to take the vaccine. So, I'm just saying, I, you know, I'm not going I'm not going to I'm not going to take this vaccine, but I'm not telling you you can't take it. Please do your own research, your own homework. Study it, look at the side effects, look at the risks, determine if that's the right thing for you to do. Talk to your doctor. Hopefully, you have a Christian doctor who will advise you. Um, but um, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that this COVID vaccine is the mark of the beast. However, later, there will be a mark of the beast that you cannot take. And it's going to be halfway through the tribulation period. It will be very clear at that time that you are taking the mark of the beast if you're here. I don't think the church is going to be here. I think the church will be raptured prior to uh, the wrath of God being poured out, but it's interesting that God is is basically describing this judgment against Babylon that goes way beyond the Medo Persian uh, judgment that came upon them with the Medo Persian Empire. For example, in the book of Revelation, in Revelation seventeen, we read this about the uh, whore of Babylon, the harlot, which is the false church, the bride of the Antichrist, as. Uh, The true church is the bride of Christ. Satan is a counterfeiter. In Revelation 17 and verse 1, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot or prostitute who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Fornication would be, this is speaking of spiritual fornication, like going after other gods other than the true and living God. God considers this fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast which was full of names and blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk, with the blood of the saints, these are the tribulation saints, and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. And so this beast that has seven heads and ten horns, is the government of the Antichrist, the ten kings, which will come up from Europe, the revived Roman Empire that are going to take over the world. And then the Antichrist is going to be a little horn. Daniel 7 tells us he'll be an 11th king that weasels his way in and takes over the whole thing. And then he becomes uh, the Antichrist. And he takes over uh, that whole system, that um, godless Governmental system, that one world government that's going to exclude God of the Bible and exclude Jesus Christ and point the people to worship the Antichrist. And there will be a false church. The false church that will be this harlot is already being formed. It's the ecumenical church. It's the people like the uh, modern Pope who says that all religions lead to God. You don't need to believe in Christ. Uh, to go to heaven. Even an atheist, if he's sincere, God is going to let him go to heaven because he's a sincere atheist. This is what the Pope says. The Pope is more concerned with the redistribution of wealth Uh, than he is with preaching the gospel. He's more concerned with fitting in with the world and saying that God's okay with gay marriage. Excuse me, God's not okay with gay marriage. I have my Bible that tells me very clearly that God's not okay with gay marriage. Who is this pope to all of a sudden after 2,000 years of church history to say God's changed his mind about gay marriage? You see, they're trying to be inclusive, that everybody is included uh, in this church. You don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to be born again. You don't have to believe in Jesus. You could be a Muslim. You could be a Hindu. Uh, you could be a Buddhist. You could be a new age. You could be wit a, a witch. Uh, whatever you want to practice, he's saying you could be part of this one world religious system. This is the whore of Babylon. It's the counterfeit church And they're going to turn against us or they're going to turn against those who are believing on Jesus Christ at this time. That's why he says, I saw the woman, the whore of Babylon, the false church, drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs. They're going to be, this church is going to be killing the people who are seeking to follow Jesus Christ at this time. She's going to have blood uh, on her hands. But the angel said to me, this false church, it's not the true church, it's the whore of Babylon, but it's a false church. But the angel said to me, verse 7, Why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman, the harlot, and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast which you saw was and is not, and will ascend up out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, all those whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they see the beast that it was and is not and yet is." Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the the woman sits. Many people believe this is speaking of Rome. Rome is known historically as the city of seven mountains, specifically where the Vatican is, actually. Verse 10, there are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue for a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth, And is of the seven and is going to perdition. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour or a very short time as kings with the beast or with the Antichrist. These are of one mind and they will give their power and authority to the beast. And they will make war with the lamb And the Lamb, speaking of Jesus Christ, will overcome them, for he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And those who are with him are called and chosen and faithful. And then he said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate, And naked, and eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. In other words, the Antichrist is going to use this false church to persecute the tribulation saints and the Jews during the time of the Great Tribulation, and then is going to turn against her and destroy her. The Antichrist is just using, the devil is just using these people to do his dirty work, and then he's going to turn on her and destroy her. Uh, Verse 17, for God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast or the Antichrist until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth and it is Babylon the great. And we read in 18 verse 1, after these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven "'Having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory, "'and he cried out mightily with a loud voice, saying, "'Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, "'and has become a dwelling place for demons, "'and a prison for every foul spirit, "'and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. "'For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. "'The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, "'and the merchants of the earth have become rich.' Through the abundance of her luxury. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Render to her just as she rendered to you, and repay her double according to her works. In the cup which she has mixed, mix double for her. In the measure that she has glorified herself and lived luxuriously, in the same measure give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit as queen and am no widow and will not see sorrow. Therefore, her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be utterly burned with fire. For strong is the Lord God who judges her. This is what Isaiah was seeing. Isaiah was seeing this judgment against the harlot who is the whore of Babylon, and then economic Babylon, uh, which is the government and the economic power that brings uh, the Antichrist to rule during the tribulation period. So we wrap up here. Let's go back quickly to Isaiah chapter 21. And verse 11. The burden against Duma, which would be the Edomites, um, or uh, Edumea, the descendants of Esau, the area of Mount Seir. He says, the burden of Duma, he calls to me out of Seir. Watchman, what of the night? Watchman, what of the night? And the watchman said, the morning comes and also the night. If you will inquire, inquire, return and come back. So that is a judgment against the nation of Edom that God is, is uh, proclaiming. And then there's a judgment against Arabia, verse thirteen. The burden against Arabia, and this would be the area of uh, ancient uh, uh, Sheba and Dedan in the scriptures. In the forest of Arabia, you will lodge, O you traveling companies of Dedanites, O inhabitants of the land of Timah. Bring water to him who is thirsty. With their bread, they met him who fled. For they fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, from the bent bow, and from the distress of war. For thus the Lord has said to me, within a year, according to the year of a hired man, which means exactly one year, all the glory of Kedar will fail. And the remainder of the number of archers, the mighty men of the people of Kedar, will be diminished. For the Lord God of Israel has spoken it. So God is pronouncing a judgment of the Assyrians against Edom, which happened uh, after this proclamation was made, and then later against uh, Arabia or the area of uh, Arabia, which is uh, modern-day S- uh, Saudi Arabia, but it was considered and called Sheba and Dedan uh, in Bible times. I want to read one more scripture to you because I'm trying to tie in, if you haven't noticed, I'm trying to tie in as much Bible prophecy into these messages as I can squeeze into the text because I think that's really what we need to know right now. I believe we are very close to a lot of the Bible prophecies of the end end days, the last times being fulfilled, and we need to just be educated. We need to have understanding. Jesus tells us this in Luke 17 to that generation that's going to live to see his return. Luke 17, verse 20, this is where we end. I know I'm going a little long here. Now, when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered and said to them, The kingdom of God does not come with observation. Nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. Then he said to his disciples, the days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look here or look there and do not go after them or follow them. For as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven shines out to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Verse 30, even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In other words, he's going to come at a time when people don't expect him. And I believe this is speaking of the rapture of the church, his coming as a thief in the night. It's going to happen as a twinkling of an eye. You won't really be able to prepare for the rapture of the church. And then the judgment of God is going to pour out like the flood waters came upon the world of Noah. And like the fire and brimstone came to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus says it's going to be just like that. Everybody's going to be buying and selling, going to work doing their economy, marrying, giving a marriage, building houses, planting gardens. They're going to be going on like life is just normal. They're not going to understand the seasons or the days in which they live, that these are the days of of the last days that the Bible predicted would come in the end times. And so we are to be those who are watching and looking for the return of Jesus Christ. It might be today, it could be tomorrow, it could be 100 years from now, but we certainly know uh, that we are seeing A lot of the signs that the Bible predicted would be the case uh, leading up to the coming of Jesus Christ. And so it's an exciting time to be a Christian. And uh, we're excited about the return of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the promises in your word that you're going to come back for us. We thank you, Lord, that you've not appointed us to wrath but unto salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you tell us that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We thank you, Jesus, that you suffered the wrath of Almighty God poured out upon you on the cross of Calvary. And therefore, your body, the church, does not need to suffer a second time under the wrath of your Father. You died once for all time for all the sins of the world and took the wrath of God upon yourself in our place And so, Lord, we do not think or believe that we are going to be here when all of these judgments come upon this earth because this is the wrath of Almighty God and the wrath of the Lamb poured out upon a Christ-rejecting world that has rejected Jesus Christ and has accepted the devil's man, the Antichrist. And so, Lord, help us to live with the mindset, Lord, that you could come back any day, whether we die and go to be with you or you come back for us. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. Help us to live, Lord God, uh, in, in, in that way where we number our days, where we look to you every day, Lord, to put you first, where, Lord, we serve you with all of our hearts and all of our minds and all of our souls and all of our strength, Lord, that we would put you first, God, in these last days. Use us to reach many uh, before you come back for your church. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Email us at podcast at com. We would be honored to pray for you, as we hope you are praying for us. Good day and God bless from City on a Hill Church to Hatchipe, California.